and it all ended happily ever after. We've all heard those words before. We usually finish our fairy tales with them, or Disney movies usually have this kind of ending. One of my favorite Disney movies as a kid was Aladdin. The best character was definitely the monkey, Abu. And uh, if you haven't heard the story before, I'm sorry, I've had enough time to hear it, so I'm going to ruin it for you now. Uh, Aladdin was this street kid in the movie, and he was working the streets of the city of Agrabah, and he often looked up at the palace, and he just wished that he could live in such a beautiful place like that. And in the palace, there was this princess called Jasmine, and she wanted to marry for love, but her father wouldn't allow her because the law stated she had to marry royalty. And one day, she runs away from the palace, and she disguises herself, and she meets Aladdin, and they fall in love but they can't get married. One thing leads to another. Another character is introduced to the story, and his name is Jafar. He's the bad guy. And he uses Aladdin to go and get this genie in a bottle out of the Cave of Wonders. But before he can get rid of Aladdin, Abu, the monkey, the best character, steals the bottle again, takes it back to Aladdin, and he ends up with this genie in a bottle. And he has three wishes that he can make. He wishes for anything he wants. And he uses his first wish to become a prince so that he can marry Princess Jasmine. But twists and turns happen in the story, and Jafar, the evil guy, somehow steals this lamp, and he rubs that bottle, and he wishes to be the most powerful person on earth, and he wishes to become the sultan, the emperor of that, that region, and he banishes Aladdin, and even though Jasmine and others try to steal the lamp back, he overpowers them. And so eventually, Aladdin taunts him and says, you're not the most powerful man on all the earth. The genie's more powerful than you. He can do anything. And he tricks Jafar into using his final wish into becoming a genie. And he gets trapped in the bottle, banished forever. And Aladdin and Jasmine, well, they get married, and it all just ends happily ever after. You're probably wondering, what has this got to do with anything that we're talking about today? Well, I promise there are some similarities between this happily ever after in Aladdin and our chapter today, 1 Kings chapter 8. But first, let me just introduce myself. I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here today. And, uh, well, the only community pastor here, always. Uh, (laughs) Not just today. (laughs) My role doesn't change that often. But uh, The Rise and Fall of Solomon, that's the series that we're in right now, and that's why we're in the first book of Kings, looking at the first 11 chapters. And so we're in chapter 8, and if you have your Bible, it would be wonderful if you could open there, um, because it's a massive chapter. We'll be running through different parts of it. If you have it open, it would be a real blessing for you and for me. But that happily ever after, lots of the best stories and the fairy tales and the movies that we watch end in that way. And I kind of wonder, I wonder if... The reason these stories resonate so much with us is because God has put a desire in our heart for happily ever after. I know in Ecclesiastes it says that God has put eternity into our hearts. It seems like there's this longing, there's this real resonating connection with these kinds of stories. And I wonder if happily ever after is not just like a naive Disney kind of idea, but actually a possibility for God's people. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 8, we come into this scene where God's people feel like happily ever after seems to be happening. All the promises seem to be coming true. And we're going to see today that this scene is really a precursor for an ultimate happily ever after. And we're going to learn how it is that we can actually trust and believe that there will be a happily ever after 
for those who put their faith in Christ. But there's a little bit of work for us to do first. So we're going to break up this chapter in under three headings. And the first is this, a covenant God, a covenant God. You'll notice in the reading before, you might have noticed that the ark was mentioned again and again. It's repeated eight times in the first nine verses. And this ark wasn't just any old box. This was the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, if you pay attention to the Bible, God only ever enters into relationships with human beings through this idea of covenant. When he makes a covenant with someone, he establishes their relationship, and it's as if he, it's as if he holds his hand out and makes promises to them and says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to do these things for you, and they're called to be a faithful covenant partner and enter that partnership, into this covenant. It's the way the relationship is established. And so we'll actually see that many of the covenants of the Bible are converging in 1 Kings chapter 8 today. And so I'm just going to give us a quick history of the three major covenants that happened before the establishment of the temple, which is what we're looking at today. So first of all, let's just go to Abraham for a moment. I put a painting up on the screen. I hope it's not too corny for you, but I thought it might engage you a little bit as we talk about these detailed things. This is supposed to be Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God comes along and he chooses this man out of grace. He's a foreigner. He's a pagan man. He hasn't done anything to deserve it. God just graciously says, hey, I'm going to come along, enter into this covenant. And he promises Abraham a few things. He promises that he'll have so many descendants that he'll become a great nation. He promises to bless him. He promises him land. And he promises that Abraham's family line will be a blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples of the earth. So that's Abraham's covenant. Then we see the covenant through Moses in Exodus chapter 19. After God rescues the people of Israel when they were a slave people under Egypt, he rescues them, he takes them out into the wilderness and he gathers them and he enters into another covenant with them. He promises to be present with them and to bless them if they will promise to be faithful in return. And this is the covenant where we see the famous Ten Commandments. And then fast forwarding a bit further along in the Bible, there's the covenant with David. God appears to David. We've talked about this the last few weeks. He promised him a son, that he would build a temple, and that one of his sons, his throne, will endure forever. Three covenants, the one with Abraham, the one with Moses, and the one with David. And we see that all three of these covenants, all the promises are converging in this chapter in 1 Kings chapter 8. The emphasis on the ark is meant to trigger this in our minds. I mean, think about it. If we can put a picture up on the screen of the temple for a moment. Think about all the last few weeks we spent looking at the chapters where uh, they were preparing materials for the building of this temple. They've built the temple. They've decorated it. And now as they really dedicate the temple, they take the ark and they place it not just in the holy place, but all the way in the deepest end of the temple where the two cher winged cherubim are. They place it in the holy of holies, this place that a high priest could only enter once a year. And inside this ark are the tablets of the covenant. And these tablets have the Ten Commandments written on them. So why is this such a big deal? Why is this ark of the covenant so significant? What does it teach us? Well, really, it highlights two things for us. First, it highlights the requirements of the covenant. These tablets are nothing less than the Ten Commandments. And they remind us that we are to be faithful to God in this covenant. They remind Israel that if they want to continue to receive God's blessing, they need to be a faithful covenant partner. But it also reminds us of the faithfulness of God already. 
Because if we think about all those covenants I just mentioned, think about how much of that has already been fulfilled. We think about Abraham, well, his people have become the great nation of Israel. They've certainly had, he's certainly had a lot of descendants. They're now in the promised land with perfect peace. He's blessed them. And God's presence is with them as he promised to Moses. He's been blessing them. And then the Davidic covenant, he's given him a son who's built the temple. So all these covenant promises seem to be coming true. God's happily ever after seems to be arriving. And it's all because God is a covenant God. He's a faithful God. He is a promise-keeping God. Even though they had sinned against God so many times already and broken their side of the deal before, God remained faithful. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of faithfulness before. Maybe you were unfaithful to your spouse and your spouse forgave you and they remained faithful anyway. Maybe you really wrecked a friendship with a friend, but when you needed them most, they came back into the scene and they stood by you. Maybe you were terrible to your parents growing up, but they continued to love you and they continued to be faithful to you anyway. Have you ever experienced that kind of faithfulness? It's an incredible feeling when someone shows faithfulness to you, even when it's costly to them. And this is what the people of Israel are feeling in this chapter. They're amazed. And this is what really we should feel. Hasn't God been faithful to us? Did you know that we live in a new covenant today? At the last meal before his death, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 26, this is my blood of the covenant. He was speaking about the blood he was going to shed at the cross. Jesus paid an incredible price to give us an incredible relationship with Jesus in the new covenant. God is a covenant God. He is faithful. He is a covenant keeper. And it's incredible faithfulness that gave Israel such a surreal joy on the day the temple was dedicated. And so this brings us to our second section, a surreal joy. We see this in this chapter because this is really the pinnacle of Israel's history in the Old Testament. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite there on this day? You've seen the temple being built, and it's this incredible structure. You see the ark coming out of the old place of worship, the tabernacle, being carried to the temple. And as they do, they sacrifice so many animals that the Bible says it couldn't even be counted. They count 142,000 at the end of the chapter, so this is a lot more than that. And they bring it into the temple, place it in the Holy of Holies, and the priests begin their service, but as they do, God's presence fills the temple in this glory cloud. It's this dark cloud that fills the temple. God's presence is seen in this amazing way. And so the priests have to get out. They can't even do what they were meant to do. And Solomon, their great king, and he gets up and he praises God and he blesses the people. And then he explains what this day is really all about. That's what we see in verse 14. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I've succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I've built the temple for the name of the Lord. See what this moment is all about? This dedication service to the temple isn't really about the temple. It all comes back to this idea of covenant again. God has been keeping the covenant. God has been faithful. He has been fulfilling these promises. 
The temple only exists because of the covenant faithfulness of God. And the people are just overwhelmed with joy because of God's faithfulness. Look at how our chapter ends. Verses 62 to 63, it says, And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Now, to understand the significance of this, we need to understand the different kind of sacrifices in the Old Testament. God's people were commanded to offer these, and they had different purposes. These were fellowship offerings. So this is about fellowship with God and with one another. They'd bring an animal before the priest, and the priest would sacrifice the animal, and the fat would be burned as an incense offering to God, like a pleasing aroma to God. But the rest of the animal, so all this beef or lamb or whatever it might be, was required to be eaten by the Israelite on that day. And I'm just kind of wondering, why they make that a requirement? Like, I would just eat that anyway. And so the family were meant to take the animal and feast that day and enjoy this animal. And it was like this incredible feast in the temple precinct, enjoying God's presence and enjoying one another. It was a time of celebration. And Solomon offers 142,000 of these. So all these offerings are like a gigantic feast for Israel. A dream come true for someone like me. A nightmare for the vegans in the room. I'm sorry. But this was incredible. They were just feasting and they were celebrating and they were enjoying what God had done and talking about the temple and his presence is just over. Like this was amazing. And you see how much they were enjoying it by how long this festival went for. You see, in this time of year, they celebrate a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. Normally this went for seven days, but look at how our chapter ends. It says in 6 verse 65, So Solomon observed the festival at that time, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly. They celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days, and seven days more, 14 days in all. On the following day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king and then went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. This was an incredible high watermark moment for the people of Israel. They were just so glad, so grateful, so overawed with all that God had done. There was a surreal joy. Now the Bible could almost end here. Because this is so close to the happily ever after Israel had been hoping for. This former slave people had been rescued from the land of Egypt. They'd finally made it into the promised land. They'd finally found peace from their enemies. They'd finally become united together under a king. And God's presence was with them. Every promise seems to be coming true. Happily ever after almost seems like it's arrived. But if we were to end our time here today, I think it would be a problem for us. Because this isn't all that relatable, is it? Life isn't normally like this. I mean, we have some incredible high mountaintop experiences, but it doesn't take long for them to come crashing back down to reality. We only have to read the news to know that our world is terribly broken. On top of this, we know from the rest of the Old Testament that it was really all downhill from here for Israel. They kept breaking the covenant. The kings kept rebelling against God. The kingdom was divided into two. 
The temple was eventually destroyed. God's presence left them. They were exiled from their homeland into Babylon. Their greatest dream ended up becoming a nightmare towards the end of the story. You know, scholars that look at these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, note that these were probably written down after the exile. And so if we think about the original audience, who were the ones that first read this? There were probably people who had seen the temple be destroyed, who had been exiled. It's probably those people. And I wonder how they would have read 1st Kings chapter 8. How would they have received it? Well, this brings us to our third and final heading, a hopeful prayer. A hopeful prayer. This is the largest section in the chapter. This is really the centerpiece, the most important section. And in this prayer, Solomon makes seven pleas before God. He essentially says to God, when we sin, because we will, when we sin against you, if we turn back to you with our hearts, please forgive us and restore us and bless us again. In other words, God, please continue to be a faithful covenant-keeping God. And not so coincidentally, the seventh and final plea, the longest plea, is a prayer for those who live in exile. And he pleads on their behalf to God. This is what he says. He says in verse 46, When they sin against you, there is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies, who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. Now, can you imagine how the later exiles reading this would have received this? This is nothing less than a plea on their behalf. This was telling them, hey, turn back to God. It's never too late. God would always, always, always be faithful to the covenant. Whether his faithfulness meant judging them as he promised in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus when they were unfaithful. Or whether his faithfulness meant forgiving them when they repented and turned back to God. And if they remained faithful, God would use Israel to usher in the world happily ever after. But Solomon has already pointed out the problem with that plan, hasn't he? He said in verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. No one. There is no one perfectly faithful among humanity. No one who won't break the covenant again. And that's why in the Old Testament, we just see this vicious cycle happening. God at first graciously initiates the relationship. Israel come in together with him in covenant partnership and promise to be faithful. But then they break their word and they rebel against God and God judges them. And then usually they repent, not always, but then God restores them and then they break it and da-da-da-da-da. It just keeps going along in this broken cycle. So how are they going to break out of that cycle? They might be able to get God's forgiveness, but how is God's plan to bless and renew and heal our world ever going to come true? How is Abraham's family line ever going to be a blessing to all the nations when they can't even get their own affairs straight? Would happily ever after come true? Well, this is exactly why 
God came in the person of Jesus. Jesus was fully divine and fully human. And in his humanity, he came as our human representative. He came as our representative to be the faithful covenant partner we have never been. It's as if he took God's hands and all those covenants, and he took God's hand, and he became the partner we should have been. This is why the New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus being the son of Abraham, about Jesus being the true Israel, about Jesus being the son of David. He came to fulfill all these covenants where we have failed. When he was tempted in the wilderness to take power for himself, to shortcut God's path and to take pleasure for himself, he said no to Satan. He remained faithful to the covenant partnership. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, so distressed over what he was about to experience on the cross, he prayed to his father, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He kept holding the father's hand. He kept being faithful to the partnership, no matter what it would cost him, all the way to the cross. And that's the most peculiar thing about the cross. Because even though Jesus was faithful his whole life, he was treated like a covenant breaker at the cross. God forsaken, judged to death. And the reason Jesus chose that path was that people, all, everyone who was in this area, every covenant breaker, that's every one of us, through faith in Jesus, can become one with Jesus, can come into this covenant partnership, this new relationship that he has secured as our faithful representative. That's what Jesus has done. He's come and been the covenant partner we have not been so that he could secure the promises and the blessings of God for us forever. It's a gracious gift that we access through faith in Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means two things. First, it means that we can absolutely be assured that Solomon's prayer will be answered for us too. If we mess up, if we sin, if we go astray, but if we turn back to God with a genuine heart, God will forgive us. Jesus has secured that forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that it says he is just. It would be unjust now for him to punish us again. He's already punished his son as a covenant breaker. So if we come through Jesus and confess our sins, it is just for him to forgive us. It is a faithful thing. So wherever you are at today, if you're struggling with sin or if you're burdened by shame or guilt, don't waste any more time staying in that space. You can come to God through Jesus and receive forgiveness today. Jesus secured that for you. God is faithful and just. He will do it if you confess your sin to him. The second thing it means is that our happily ever after, that, that, that vision of the future, is not just possible, it's secured for those who put their faith in Jesus. Because Jesus stopped that vicious cycle where the blessing of God just wouldn't get out to the peoples of the earth. Instead, he came as the faithful covenant partner. And so those blessings and those promises of God are secure forever in Christ. And so that means happily ever after is not just possible, it's certain for those who put their faith in Jesus. One day, Jesus will come back. 
and he will come as the son of David, the king of all the earth, and he will do justice. He will bring every evil deed into account. He will bring every secret thing out into the open, and he will do justice. And he will heal the earth, and he will cleanse our world, and God's presence will flood our world. It won't just be located in the temple. It will be located over the whole earth, the new creation. And we will walk with resurrected bodies, healthy, whole. We will run and we will dance and we will sing and we will celebrate and we will clap and we will throw our hands in the air like we just don't care. Because God's reality will just be so glorious. I can't believe this is actually real what I'm talking about. It's not just a Disney story or a fairy tale. This reality is the certain future of all those who put their faith in Jesus. He will put death to death. He will get rid of hell out of this world. He will banish Satan. He will banish sin. He will heal our sin-sick hearts. This is, what, this, is the, this is the beautiful reality that God has promised to us in Christ. It's not a Disney story. It's the certain hope of all those who put their trust and their faith in the faithfulness of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Let's believe that, church. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us the faith to believe in your incredible promises. Help us to see your faithfulness shown to us in Jesus. Jesus, we cannot imagine the incredible burden that you bared for, for us at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for choosing to take our place, for choosing to submit to the judgment of a covenant breaker so that covenant breakers can be accepted by God forever. We thank you for the certain future you have secured for us, for the new heaven and new earth that is a coming reality for those who trust in you. Lord, thank you that the best is yet to come. Thank you that forgiveness Forgiveness is sure because of you, Jesus. Lord, we pray that we don't waste time in sin or unfruitfulness. But Jesus, we come and we're quick to confess our sins to you. And that we receive the power of the Spirit today. That we might live fruitful and faithful lives here today until we see your face in eternity. We love you. We pray this in your name as your people.